It's August 5th, 1989. The town of Fredericktown, Missouri lies nestled in the foothills of the St. Francois Mountains, some 90 miles south of St. Louis. It's surrounded on three sides by the Mark Twain National Forest, typical small town America, the kind of place where folks leave their doors unlocked and windows open. Lieutenant Keith Despain starts his night shift at 9.30. He's lived here all his life, Fredericktown born and raised. Policing the streets of a town like this is a far cry from bigger places like Kansas City. Serious crimes like murder are rare, and at times it feels more babysitting than peacekeeping. For Despain, law enforcement is a family business. He's following in the footsteps of both his father and grandfather. Tonight is a typical Saturday. Other than a few teenagers driving too fast down the darkening streets, it's all fairly routine. Sometime between 10.30 and 11, a call comes in to say that somebody has abandoned a bicycle up on High Street. Despain heads over and finds the bike just lying there, handlebars sticking up like antlers on a downed deer. There's no sign of its owner. No markings or anything to suggest who has ditched it here. It doesn't look damaged, and there's no indication of it having been in an accident. No blood, no tire marks. It appears that it has simply been left. Despain shakes his head and picks it up. He takes it back to the station, leaves it out in the yard, and gets back to work. He doesn't give it another thought until a little after 2 a.m., when local resident Cindy Box calls. She's worried about her 13-year-old daughter, Gina. She thought Gina had gone to bed, but now Cindy thinks her daughter had headed out earlier that night on her bicycle. But where to? She has no idea. For Despain, the mention of the bike sparks an instant connection. The one he found abandoned on the high street can't be a coincidence, surely. There's every chance Gina is at a friend's house. Maybe she just got tired of riding and ditched her bike. It'd be a little irresponsible of her, sure, but teenagers are prone to doing much worse. Then again, it's possible it could be something more serious. She might have fallen off and needed to visit the local emergency room. So, Despain puts a call in to the nearby hospital, but the nurse he speaks to says that nobody matching Gina's description has come in tonight. This sends her mom's anxiety levels sky high and even Despain is forced to admit that something feels a little off about the situation. That, as it turns out, is a huge understatement. Disturbing accounts will surface from those who saw Gina riding her bike that night. Stories of suspicious cars cruising nearby, and how she was there one minute and gone the next. What began as just another call from a worried parent will become a missing persons case that consumes Despain for the rest of his career. For Gina's family and friends, this is just the start of a very long search. There's only one question on their minds. What happened to Gina? It'll be years before they get anywhere even close to the answers they crave. A man called Bryant Squires claims on his deathbed that he was there that night. He says he knows exactly what happened to Gina. He tells them that he didn't hurt her, but he knows the man who did. The name he gives is a good friend of his, Nathan Williams. 
and it's a story that Squires needs to get off his chest before he passes away. If what he says is true, then the riddle of Gina's disappearance may finally have been solved. But proving Squires' claims will be another matter entirely. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Nathan Williams, of the words spoken about him by his friend, Brian Squires, as he lay dying of a small town whose illusion of safety was brutally ripped away, of a teenage girl who went out for a bike ride and never came home, of a group of men who preyed on the vulnerable and may have committed a string of crimes that stretch back years across multiple towns, and of the law enforcement officers who refuse to rest until the victims get justice. I'm Estefania Hakeman, And this is Deathbed Confessions. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. It's the evening of Saturday, August 5th, 1989, just a few hours before Gina's disappearance. Shadows steal across the sidewalks of Fredericktown as the day draws to a close. There's the usual background noise of small-town life, music drifting from a handful of local bars, cars cruising down quiet streets. Against this backdrop, a crack rings out from a nearby baseball field. Spectators cheer as a batter coasts around the bases to claim a home run. Among the crowd is 13-year-old Gina Dawn Brooks. She's here to watch her younger brother Chris play. When the game finishes around 10 p.m., Gina and her family walk the couple of blocks back to their home. It's a neat two-story wooden house on College Street, 
where they live with their mom, Cindy, and stepdad, David. It's late, and Cindy's plans stretch no further than a bath, then bed. She assumes the kids will turn in for the night, too, but they have other plans. Chris goes to his room to play video games. As for Gina, she waits until around 10.30, then tells Chris that she's headed back out to see her boyfriend, TJ Kennedy, and that she won't be long. She says goodnight to her mom, but doesn't mention anything about going back out. Then she slips out of the back door without another word. Gina grabs her red bike and wheels it down the short garden path and out onto College Street. The night has settled over Fredericktown like a blanket, and save for the rumble of a car in the distance, the only sound she hears is the whirring of her own wheels. TJ lives six blocks away. It's a route that Gina has ridden dozens of times, She's in her own little world and doesn't hear the growl of the engine until it's almost right beside her. When she finally notices the car, she stops beside the First Street Baptist Church. She drops her feet to the ground, straddling the bike, but doesn't get off. From eyewitness accounts, it's not clear if the occupants of the car say anything to her. If they do, Gina doesn't stick around to respond. She pedals back out onto the road and keeps going until the corner of East College and High Street. There, she's relieved to see TJ outside his house with his friend Chad Morgan. The three hang out on the corner for a while before deciding to call it a night. TJ doesn't know it, but this is the last time he'll ever see his girlfriend. Gina cycles off and disappears from view moments later. He and Chad hear a piercing scream, followed by the squeal of tires. The voice is unmistakable. It's Gina. TJ? Help! The boys see a station wagon speed past them, heading towards Highway 67. It all happens so fast that they're not even sure what they've just witnessed. And just like that, any sense of innocence in Fredericktown is torn up and thrown away as its most controversial case begins. Cindy Box wakes up around 1 a.m. and sees her son Chris is still playing video games. There's no sign of Gina, though. When Chris tells her about his sister's bike ride, a wave of anxiety likely washes over her. Gina should have been back hours ago. Concerned, Cindy heads out onto the quiet streets, but Gina's nowhere to be found. An hour later, at 2 a.m., Cindy is worried enough to call the police. Despain is the officer she speaks to, and the instant she mentions Gina going for a ride, he makes the connection with the bike found abandoned on High Street. Despain and his men immediately hit the streets, looking for any sign of Gina. By daybreak, Fredericktown is crawling with city, county, state, and federal officials. Locals, eager to help, come out in force to join in the search. They scour the town and surrounding areas, anywhere from nearby state parks to abandoned buildings. They all come up empty-handed, though. But not all hope is lost. The search attracts huge amounts of attention and witnesses soon come forward saying they'd seen Gina just before she went missing. 
Despain is able to piece together her route from their accounts and retraces it all the way to TJ's house. Gina's boyfriend tells Despain what he saw and heard. He describes the station wagon as best he can. He tells Despain it had Missouri plates, although he couldn't make them out clearly. He isn't even certain about the color thanks to how dark it had been. It could have been light blue, gray, or even green. Investigators pray for an early break, but other than locating witnesses, Despain has nothing concrete to suggest where Gina might be or who took her. The search continues into Monday, and authorities set up a command post at the local firehouse. 60 civilians from three counties continue to search alongside the largest gathering of law enforcement that Despain has ever seen on a case. Missing persons flyers appear in the windows of local stores with a picture of her, appealing for information. The shot they use shows Gina smiling like she doesn't have a care in the world. Around the town, yellow ribbons, the universal symbol for hope for those missing, are tied to trees, fluttering like birds in the breeze. More tips come in. Despain and his fellow officers follow up every single one of them, but they yield nothing. As days stretch into weeks, the case stirs up intense media interest. Reporters stop locals in the street for sound bites. It's upset everybody, says one young mother, out shopping with her own daughter. We're all afraid for our kids. The most hard-hitting of these interviews comes from Gina's mom, Cindy. She sits on the porch of their home on College Street, as if she's waiting for Gina to come running down the street any minute. You can't do anything else, Cindy tells reporters, shaking her head in disbelief. You can't get your mind on anything to do anything else. Despain continues to follow up every single lead that comes in. There are hundreds and not just local. Some suggest Gina has been taken out of state. One even claims she's in Canada. Could whoever abducted her have smuggled her across the border? Despain refuses to leave any stone unturned and enlists the help of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. When the Mounties report back two days later, though, it's another disappointing dead end. Weeks turn into months, and the somber mood that descended in Fredericktown the day Gina was taken still lingers. Despain is no closer to finding her, and for now at least, the tips dry up and the trail goes cold. Just keep looking, he tells reporters who ask him what's next. We'll find her eventually. It'll be another five years, though, before there's a spark to give him and her family hope. And when it comes, it comes from a source they didn't expect. As the years stretch out, Gina's case is never far from Despain's mind. He often wakes up in the night with thoughts and ideas of what to try next. He has lost count of the hours he has spent on the case, the miles he has driven, the people he has spoken to. The irony is that when the breakthrough comes, it has nothing to do with his monumental efforts. It starts with a letter from a grieving mother in Connecticut, over a thousand miles to the east. The author of that letter, Janet Dinwiddie, has lived through a parent's worst nightmare. Her youngest daughter, who went by her middle name Michelle, 
was murdered in St. Louis back in 1975, aged just 23. At the time of her death, she worked for Volunteers in Service for America, a domestic version of the Peace Corps. On a freezing day in March 1975, Michelle failed to show up for work. A friend went to her apartment thinking she might be ill. Instead, they found her lifeless body. Her throat had been slashed and she had been stabbed twice in the chest and once in the abdomen. There was no sign of forced entry. With very few leads, Michelle's case quickly went cold. There was a flash of hope three years later in 1978 when an informant came forward. A young teenager by the name of Nathan Williams claimed he knew who killed her. He shared a name with police that wasn't made public and they set about investigating. Ultimately though, nothing came of it and the case sunk back down their list of priorities. Two decades later, however, Williams's name will crop up again, but in a whole new light. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It's June 1995, and Janet Dinwiddie still clings onto the hope that there'll be a break in her daughter's case. She's recently been dealt another blow with the passing of her husband, he died never knowing what happened to their daughter. And the added weight of fresh grief prompts her to write a letter to the St. Louis police. In it, she implores them to never give up, no matter how long it takes. It lands on the desk of Captain David Heath, the commander of the Homicide Division. Moved, he assigns a fresh pair of eyes to the case. One of his most tenacious detectives by the name of Chris Pappas Detective Pappas starts the investigation from scratch. He begins by tracking down anyone interviewed in connection with the case. One of those he looks at is the now 34-year-old Nathan Danny Williams. He proves easier to find than Detective Pappas thought. That's because Williams is serving a lengthy sentence as a repeat offender. The first offense was for the rape of a 10-year-old girl in 1979. He was paroled, but got sent back behind bars in 1985 for robbery. His most recent arrest came in 1989 for the rape of another 10-year-old girl in St. Louis. Detective Pappas wonders if Williams has been playing them all along by naming another suspect in the Michelle Dinwiddie murder. He had only been 14 back then, but at this point, Detective Pappas refuses to rule anything out. For the rape conviction in 1989, Williams received 30 years. And in July 1996, Detective Pappas heads out to Farmington Correctional Facility, 70 miles south of St. Louis, to speak with him face to face. It's the first of a series of interviews Detective Pappas carries out with him. Slowly but surely, he is able to pick apart Williams' story, pointing out the inconsistencies. Eventually, Williams admits that he was actually there the night Michelle Dinwiddie was killed. 
but is adamant that he didn't do it. He does, however, blame her death on the same suspect he had back in 1978. Pappas doesn't buy it, though. Over the months that follow, he interviews more than 50 other people connected to the case. He's like a dog with a bone. And before long, Pappas hits pay dirt. He speaks to several witnesses who place Williams at a service station off Interstate 70 the night before Michelle Dinwiddie's body was found. They recall seeing blood on him and that he had a small radio believed to belong to Michelle. Williams is now the main suspect in her murder. There's still work to do before he can be charged, though, as a confession is unlikely. Missouri still has capital punishment, and Williams isn't about to sign his own death warrant. Incredibly, though, Pappas doesn't just dig up information linking Williams to one murder. What he uncovers links him to another high-profile case, one that's remained unsolved for seven years. Gina Dawn Brooks. In the course of picking apart Nathan Williams' life, Pappas learns that Williams' brother has a friend who lives in Fredericktown, very close to the home of Gina Don Brooks. Williams, who was 28 at the time of Gina's disappearance, was known to have made frequent visits to the area. It's a logical step to wonder if a man with his rap sheet might be involved in Gina's case, too. Pappas reaches out to the lead detective in her case, Lieutenant Keith Despain, and the two agree to join forces. Williams consents to a lie detector in a subsequent interview and is asked directly whether he kidnapped or killed Gina. He denies it point blank, but the polygraph tells a different story. According to the machine, Williams is lying. Although that on its own isn't enough to charge him and might not be admissible in court. They decide to enlist the help of the FBI, who assist Pappas and Spain in employing a highly unusual tactic. They make a videotape sharing details of Gina's case and asking for help. But they aren't asking just anybody. They share it with prisoners in the Missouri Department of Corrections, seeking information from anyone who might have crossed paths with Williams. Within criminal circles, nobody likes a snitch, but cases involving kids are different. Inmates do have a code of conduct when it comes to children, says Despain, when asked about their unorthodox approach. It's not long before several inmates reach out to the FBI. And when they do, two names keep cropping up. Timothy Bellew and Bryant Squires. Both men are longtime friends of Williams. Squires in particular is one of his best buddies. Then comes another tip. A witness, whose identity remains a secret to this day, claims to have seen Williams and Squires driving around a campground near Fredericktown. Squires was at the wheel, and Williams was in the back sitting beside a girl who matched Gina's description. This is potentially huge. Not only does this put the main suspect with the missing girl, but Pappas and Despain are hopeful that they might be able to get at least one of their three suspects to turn on the others. After seven years of wondering, could they finally be close to the truth of what happened that night? For answers, they must track down Brian Squires and Timothy Bellew.
By November 1996, Pappas and Despain feel a sense of momentum building from their recent wins and begin their search for the two men. By now, the press has gotten hold of the story and tips steadily flow in. One comes the following year from a nurse who works at a St. Louis hospital. She claims she cared for Squires as recently as a few months ago. Sadly, they've missed their chance to talk to the 37-year-old in person. Squires had died earlier this year, in 1997, from cancer and complications arising from HIV. But any disappointment is short-lived when the nurse reveals that before he died, Squires claimed to have done some terrible things in his time. Things that he wanted to get off his chest before it was too late. Her version of the conversations with Squires could be the most important piece of the puzzle yet. The way she tells it, Squires had known he was dying. The weaker he grew, the more he talked. In his final few days, he told stories about his past, horrific accounts about crimes he claimed to have carried out. He told his nurse that he hadn't committed these acts alone. His best friend, Nathan Williams, had always been by his side. One story stands out from all the rest, a name that justifies every late night and every scrap of overtime that Pappas and Despain have worked. Gina Dawn Brooks. Squires allegedly told the nurse that he had been the driver of the station wagon on the night of August 5th, 1989. How he and a third man, Timothy Bellew, had helped Williams grab Gina from her bike and sped off. He claimed Williams was the one who killed Gina. According to Squires, Williams cut her throat and then enlisted Bellew to help dispose of her body. He also allegedly confessed to several other crimes. Amongst these was the kidnapping and murder of a nine-year-old girl, Angie Hausman, three years earlier. Lastly, he implicates Williams in the Michelle Dinwiddie murder. When asked why she hadn't contacted police at the time, the nurse said the stories were so horrendous that she didn't think they could be true. Even though they've come across the squire's apparent confession too late to speak to him directly, this still feels like a huge win. Confirmation of what Pappas and Despain already believed. There's one huge problem though. It's all secondhand. Because no sworn statement was taken, none of it will be admissible if this ever goes to court. If there's going to be justice for Gina, Pappas and Despain still have work to do in order to secure convictions for Williams and Bellew. The first thing they do is to officially charge Nathan Williams with the murder of Michelle Dinwiddie, thanks to the cumulative weight of evidence against him. But they don't stop there. Although the witnesses that Pappas and Despain speak to aren't named publicly, their statements begin to mount up against Williams in particular. An article in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch dated September 7, 1997, lays out the evidence that police have made public. One witness claims that Williams had noticed Gina around town before her abduction, suggesting that she may have been targeted. Pappas and Despain tracked down several friends and cellmates who say Williams spoke about the kidnapping with them. He even allegedly shared details about certain items of her clothing that only her killer would know. What these were is never made public. There is also evidence that Williams was treated for a bite to his hand in the days that followed Gina's disappearance. 
Had Gina fought hard enough for her life to injure him? Finally, in 1998, Pappas and Despain tracked down the third man implicated in Gina's disappearance, Timothy Bellew. He was 19 at the time she vanished, and in the years since, he too has served time. Bellew was convicted in 1990 of sexually assaulting a seven-year-old girl. Maybe it's a crisis of conscience, or maybe he's just worn down from the years behind bars, but Bellew caves. He tells investigators that he saw Williams kill Gina. He claims they put her in a meat freezer and buried her somewhere on a 96-acre farm owned by his father near Fredericktown. Police send teams to search every square inch of the area, but it's no easy task. Much of the land is rough, undeveloped, and covered in patches of forest. They do find a freezer, although it hasn't been buried. It's also empty, and after digging at four different locations, they admit defeat for the time being. Even without a body, the weight of evidence they already have against Williams is stacking up. The case grows more compelling by the day. It isn't clear what convinces the district attorney to finally do it. But in October 1998, nine years after Gina went missing, Pappas and Despain finally get the green light to charge Williams with her kidnapping and murder. In addition, his alleged accomplice Bellew is hit with a second-degree murder charge. It's a moment to savor. Pappas has the honor of walking right into Williams' cell in the Jefferson City Correctional Facility and presenting him with the murder warrant personally. He wasn't surprised, Pappas said when asked later how it went. He knew I was coming for him again. He couldn't believe all the goods we had on him. He was like, how did you get all this? It's a huge relief, both for the investigators and for Gina's family. Two challenges remain though. First is to secure convictions for Bellew and Williams. Second, find Gina's body. While Williams waits for a trial date, Pappas and Despain haven't given up hope of finding Gina's final resting place. They go back to Thomas Bellew, who is still in custody for what will become an increasingly frustrating series of interviews. His story changes from one day to the next. They're able to disprove much of what he claims about Gina's whereabouts. Around the same time in 1998, there's a major setback. Williams's murder charges in the Michelle Dinwiddie case are dropped. Prosecutors in St. Louis aren't confident that they have enough to secure a conviction and don't want to fall foul of the double jeopardy rule, which states that a person cannot be tried for the same crime twice. If he's found not guilty, then they can't take another run at him if new evidence is uncovered at a later date. It feels like such a sucker punch as far as Pappas and Despain are concerned, but the charges in Gina's case are still in place. Then, on February 2nd, 1999, Bellew's second-degree murder charge is dropped. Instead, He's now charged with making false statements to the FBI in regards of his admission of lying to the FBI about where Gina was buried. It's clever maneuvering on the part of prosecutors because it allows them to proceed with a new charge immediately 
while reserving the right to reinstate the murder charge at a future date. Bellew is convicted of making false statements and receives a 30-month sentence. Meanwhile, Nathan Williams is still in police's crosshairs, with a preliminary hearing set for March 10, 1999. He pleads not guilty and sticks to his story that he had nothing to do with Gina's disappearance. But the wheels of justice turn slowly, and prosecutors elect not to push for a speedy trial. Having seen the Dinwiddie murder charge fall apart, they want more time to build their case and make sure they get their man. In the meantime, Williams isn't due for parole until 2039. He's going nowhere. Sadly, as Pappas and Despain will soon find out, the same may be true of their quest to get justice for Gina. Williams's trial is set for January 2002. Plenty of time in the eyes of the prosecutors to construct a watertight case. As the months roll by, though, and the date moves closer, there's still a degree of apprehension about proceedings. Just like in the Dinwiddie case, double jeopardy applies if Williams is acquitted. They can't charge him with Gina's murder a second time, not even if her body turns up. As the trial date approaches, Madison County Prosecutor Dwight Robbins announces a delay, although doesn't make his reasons clear. No new date is set just yet. Months pass by, and on May 22, 2003, comes the announcement Gina's family have been dreading. Charges against Williams are being dropped. In a press release to Heartland News, Madison County Prosecutor Dwight Robbins writes, Based upon new developments in the case, I'm of firm opinion that the state should not proceed to trial and risk the possibility of acquittal, thereby losing any chance of retrying the case should further evidence become available. Robbins goes on to say, the offense alleged is so egregious and the consequences of conviction so great that the prosecution should proceed only when the evidence is sufficient to ensure the likelihood of conviction. As frustrating as it feels to Gina's family, as well as detectives Pappas and Despain, it's a smart, cautious move. Williams won't be getting out of prison anytime soon, and he isn't in a position to hurt any other children. Despain too sees the sense in this. When asked for his opinion by reporters, he says, there is no statute of limitations on kidnapping or murder, so it's better to let it ride until maybe something does come forward. Williams still has 26 years to serve while the state continues to build their case. The beauty of small towns like Fredericktown, though, is that sense of community spirit, of family. Pappas and Despain are no longer leading the efforts to make Williams pay for Gina's murder but they've handed the torch to someone else who is just as passionate. Eric Hovis is now the police chief. Like Despain, Hovis was born and raised in Fredericktown and knows the impact Gina's case has had on the community. This is still an active case, he says with steely determination in a 2022 interview. With advancement in technology, you never know what one tip might make the difference. For Hovis in particular, her disappearance hits close to home. He and his wife lost a daughter at birth. I know what that did to us, 
he said. I cannot even begin to imagine what this family has had to endure. Hovis vows he, too, will see this to the end. As for Gina's family, they now live in Farmington, 20 miles away from where their worst fears became a reality. Her mom, Cindy, has flirted with the idea of visiting Williams for years, asking him outright what he did to her daughter. But she's been warned that no good will likely come of it. Williams has endured hours of interrogation from trained officers. He's unlikely to confess to a crime that could see him face the death penalty. When asked by reporters on the 21st anniversary of Gina's disappearance, how she copes with her grief, she considers it for a while, then says, We just take it day by day, keep our faith and be as strong as we can be as a family. I've just turned it over to God. I don't know what to do anymore. After so many years, it feels like a long shot, but maybe one day those prayers will be answered and she'll finally be able to lay her daughter to rest. In the meantime, Nathan Williams, the one man who could perhaps give her that peace, remains stoically silent. As far as Cindy is concerned, even if he's never convicted of Gina's murder, he's right where he belongs. Next week on Deathbed Confessions we meet Valery Legasov, a Soviet scientist who witnessed the horrific events of Chernobyl. On April the 26th, 1986, a faulty reactor at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant explodes, blasting thousands of tons of toxic radiation into the atmosphere and poisoning hundreds of people. The danger to human lives across the globe is scarily severe, and yet the Soviet Union vehemently denies any wrongdoing it's only when, aged 51 and suffering from radiation sickness, Valery Legasov finally gives the world the truth. Over four hours of chilling deathbed confessions, Legasov details with a tragic clarity what really happened at the deadly power plant. He spills dark secrets the Soviet Union have fought to keep quiet for two long years and relays troubling information that implies the state may have been at fault. Will we finally discover who is to blame for the world's worst nuclear explosion? Find out next week. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Rob Scrag. Supervising editor Jane O. Sound design by Matias Torresole. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. 